Welcome to a special edition of Coronavirus, The Whole Story, made especially for the Cheltenham Science Festival at home by UCL Minds. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and host of this podcast. We're looking at the whole story of coronavirus, recognising the critical insights that UCL's researchers from every discipline can contribute to our understanding of coronavirus and its impacts. If you're joining us for the first time today, we're very pleased to have you on board. And if you want to catch up with previous episodes, which explore life in intensive care, impact on education, and even what 19th century yellow fever outbreaks in Buenos Aires can tell us about COVID, we'll be giving you details of how to find them later. In this edition, we're going to be looking at how we tackle and track the virus. What's already clear is that it's going to take more than a single silver bullet to defeat corona. And my four guests today each have a special part to play in its downfall. So let me introduce them to you. Susie Farid is Professor of Biochemical Engineering and Co-Director of the Future Targeted Healthcare Manufacturing Hub at UCL. She leads research on novel software-based decisional tools to plan the best route to manufacture new biotherapeutic candidates. Dr. Richard Angel is Principal Research Associate in the Translational Research Office of UCL's School of Pharmacy and set up their Drug Discovery Unit. Its job is to help researchers at UCL convert interesting science into new drug discovery approaches. Now their sites are firmly focused on COVID-19. Francois Balou is Director of the UCL Genetics Institute and also Professor of Computational Systems Biology at UCL. He's recently published on the genome sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and is particularly interested in viral evolution. Finally, Judy Brewer, Professor of Virology, whose specialty is pathogen sequencing, reading a microbe's genetic code letter by letter. And I should say that Judy and I last met during the last pandemic when we sat on a committee talking about just this kind of thing together. So let's start with you, Judy. The knowledge of the virus itself, how does knowing the virus's genome help us? Well, if we have the viral genome and we have um, and we are able to sequence it, that gives us all the letters that are in the genome. Um, and there are lots of things we can do with that. We can understand how those letters translate into um, proteins, and that gives us information on what uh, the virus uses to bind to receptors, how the virus gets into cells, the machinery that the virus uses to reproduce itself. But we can also use the letters of the genome just to compare between viruses and we can ask, is one virus uh, the same as another? Are the letters the same as the, as the virus next door? And that gives us very powerful tools to actually track uh, what's happening to the virus um, over time. So we can use it both for the biology and understanding the biology and the proteins, but we can also use it for uh, understanding the epidemiology of the virus. Because... It's not the only coronavirus, is it? So that we have, I think there's something like seven coronaviruses, three are dead nasty, uh, but four are just ubiquitous in the human population. We experience them as colds. So does knowledge of the gene sequence help you track down which one is which? 
Well, yes. I mean, we can use the genome sequence to design tests, um, and it's very important uh, for understanding um, viruses and, and diseases that they cause to be able to detect them. So, we, you know, the, the normal um, sequences of the uh, of the coronavirus that are circulating generally is different from the uh, virus sequence for the SARS-CoV for COVID nineteen, and we can design tests that will distinguish between these viruses. And that allows us to to say who you know what the infection is in in an individual person. And you're quite right that we have tests, in fact, for the see what we call the seasonal coronaviruses that are circulating, and they come back every winter. Uh, and we use a test called PCR, which detects this, these viruses. And most of the time, we don't find that they cause very many problems, except occasionally in people whose immune systems are compromised. Uh, and then you mentioned two other viruses that cause problems, uh, more problems in humans, and that's the MERS uh, coronavirus and the SARS coronavirus, which appeared in the, the early 2000s. And again, we can use the genomes of those viruses to to design tests that allow us to detect the virus and decide which virus is causing the infection that we're interested in. So the tests that you're developing are the kind that tell you, have I had it or have I got it right now, rather, rather than have I had it? Absolutely. Uh, people will have heard of the PCR test or the antigen test. And the, the PCR test or an antigen test tells you whether you've got the infection at the time. Uh, and then we use antibody tests to d- decide whether we've had the infection in the past. OK, so we've got the basics straight now there, Judy. Tell us what you're doing at UCL. Well, I'm involved in a number of studies and one of the very exciting things that's happened with this outbreak, this this pandemic, is that we have really started to use new technology to try and fine-tune how we control the, the, the virus. And one of the things that we've started doing as a country is a national um, project called the COG UK project, uh, which sequences all the viruses that we can get hold of to look at the genetic code to look at the number, the letters that make up each sequence. And that helps us to link one sequence to another. And that's giving us information about how the virus is spreading in this country, uh, where the viruses first came from, when they first came into the country, and how they are mutating. And, And that will give us information that will feed into vaccine design. It will feed into understanding whether drugs are causing mutations. It will tell us whether the virus is becoming more virulent or less virulent. And it will also help us manage things like after lockdown, we'll be able to say whether there's been a particular outbreak in one part of the country or whether it's come from another part of the country and and spread uh, because someone has brought their virus with them. And that will help us in this um, effort to try and fine tune how we control the virus in the months to come. So very useful for tracking uh, the, the outbreak. But explain something which I think a lot of people find uh, difficult to understand. So we couldn't start making tests, of course, until we had the genome sequence which came from China. So we've only had that since January. Why can't we have the kind of test which you just take a swab from your mouth and then uh, it's a bit like a pregnancy test? Why is it so difficult to do a test? 
Well, you know, making a test requires that you have reagents that can be quality controlled. They have to be sensitive. They have to pick the virus up. They also have to be very specific. They mustn't pick up viruses that are not uh, the not the COVID virus. And getting that right is really quite difficult. And you you need all the ingredients. You need to to test all the ingredients and optimize all the ingredients, not just the virus itself, but all the buffers and and all the other things that go into making the test work need to be fine tuned and and tested. And and getting that right can be quite problematic. I mean, you know, we we all want a test that we can just do at the bedside or do it our in our homes, but actually, point of care tests, as which we as the, what we we call them, are very difficult to get right. And we've only really had good point point of care tests in the last, you know, three or four years, in fact. So producing them for COVID-19 in the space of three months has been an, an absolutely extraordinary effort. And we're now beginning to get those tests. But you can imagine that, you know, optimizing everything to get those tests working has just been really Herculean task. I mean, people have put extraordinary effort into it. It's in, in some ways, it's unfortunate because perhaps people look at the media and they see testing as a failed exercise. And yet the amount of work that's going on at UCL and in other places has been extraordinary. What have been your most significant challenges? I think the most significant challenges were trying to get tests that worked quickly. And, you know, our in in a pandemic, there is usually a sort of master plan that we we tend to follow, and we we followed that master plan, and and, and that includes rolling out tests that have been developed in one lab and then rolling them out to other labs. That really didn't work for this. It was spreading so fast and was causing so much of a problem that that traditional master plan, that traditional roadmap didn't work. And what we really needed to do was to put lots of different people together to work, to to develop tests all at the same time. And I think that that has been the challenge that we've sort of learned from our mistakes about. And we just didn't get our test development up fast enough in the UK. And I think that's something that we will learn for for the future. I mean, testing is something that we have at our disposal, which was not present in the past, you know, in the 1918 pandemic, for example, or in previous influenza pandemics, we have not had the rapid test abilities that we've got now. And these are incredibly powerful tools that can give us enormous ability to stratify, to, to target how we um, manage these pandemics so that we can get away from the the sort of blunt tools of having to lock everybody up. What we'd like to be able to do is really just, you know, keep those people who are infected away and and to do that we need these these very precise tools and and developing those rapidly has been a, a really big challenge we've not seen yet partly because of the problems with testing a very extensive testing of the population who appear not to have been exposed but actually some of them probably will have been exposed and not had any symptoms. What are your thoughts on that? How many, what's the percentage of population that you think have been exposed to this virus? Well, you know, as you say, we we don't know because we don't have the test. So, so this is, you know, this is based on sort of slightly guesswork and modelling work that people have done. But, you know, depending on the area of the country, um, it's somewhere between 5, 10, 
10% and po- possibly even as high as 15% in some parts of the world where there, or in some parts of the country where there's been more of um, more infection. So it's going to be very low wherever it is. And, but until we have good antibody tests and we can roll those out at, at scale, uh, we can't really make you know we can't really decide exactly how many people have had the, have had the infection but it will be key i mean to, to to allowing us all to move about certainly in the short term it will be key to know who's had the infection and who may then have a measure of immunity and of course that's another big $64,000 question that we don't know the answer to let me turn now to francois because One of the things that we all know about viruses is that just like uh, the flu viruses uh, change constantly. And I know that, Francois, you're particularly interested in how uh, viruses evolve over time. And the great worry is that there will be a sudden kind of switch to something much more pathogenic. How are things looking at the moment? I would say things are looking pretty good. I, I don't know many people have predicted that the virus might become more pathogenic in the short term. What has been claimed is that some lineages or sublineages are evolving towards becoming more transmissible. And we looked into that quite carefully recently and very happy to tell you that so far none of the mutations that have emerged seem to be associated with higher transmission. I cannot tell you whether in the future, this might happen or not, but they say it's relatively un- implausible that we will see much more transmissible lineages in the near future. Now, obviously, all viruses mutate. Actually, SARS-CoV-2, like other coronaviruses, are a bit unusual because they have a proofreading mechanism. So actually, the mutation rate or the evolutionary rate is much slower than what we see, for instance, in the influenza, so influenza A, which causes seasonal, which is a major cause of seasonal flu. And interestingly, also the mutations we see are not of the kind of only standard type of mistakes made by the virus when it replicates. But many mutations we see actually are mutations which are induced by our own immune system, which has some RNA editing mechanisms. So actually, most of the mutations really in circulation now, are mutations that the immune system created. And that's actually quite good news, because it really does not suggest that we're seeing the evolution of, let's say, more transmissible or more virulent, nastier viruses at this stage. Now, often we've seen in the past that as a virus uh, spreads very widely, it sometimes becomes less pathogenic. I know people are worried, as you say, about becoming more pathogenic, but how about less pathogenic as it uh, spreads? Because after all, the virus is going to get further and faster if it's uh, it doesn't inconvenience people and they spread it nicely for it. Sure, you're absolutely right. And one of the features which makes SARS-CoV-2 so difficult to control with traditional, let's say, outbreak control methods is that an important subset of, of people actually have either no symptom or very mild symptoms. So essentially, they still carry on, they travel, and they don't necessarily realize they're infected, especially in the early stages of the pandemic, which obviously led to a very fast 
uh, spread of the virus. And a virus which is much more aggressive, let's say, which makes people unwell, uh, seriously unwell, would not have had this capacity to spread so fast. And this is what we saw previously with related viruses like SARS-CoV-1 or, or in the early 2000s or MERS, which is also a related virus. You also absolutely right that a virus or any pathogen in itself actually doesn't get any evolutionary benefit. It doesn't spread better if it inconveniences or makes its host um, sick. However, we, it is difficult to make really prediction whether, predictions whether a virus will become more aggressive or less aggressive. It's quite complex. And this kind of rule of thumb that a virus becomes always less um, aggressive to its host is actually only strictly true for viruses that are inherited vertically, for instance, from mother to, to offspring. And in this case, obviously, if a virus hurts its carriers, then it has a lesser chance to be passed on to the next generation vertically. But for horizontally transmitted viruses, so from person to person, it is a bit more difficult to make strong predictions. And for instance, there can be a positive correlation between the number of, let's say, for instance, a virus that is better at replicating might hurt its host more. And so it depends a lot on the population structure and all sorts of things where they actually will become more or less virulent. So I think we should be a bit agnostic when it becomes less or more virulent. But fundamentally, there's no reason it should become more virulent. It's a virus that transmits very, very well. Um, and let's say that is, can be, obviously, is extremely uh, lethal for a subset of its host, but also for a larger subset of its host can be essentially borderline asymptomatic or, or have very little symptoms. And I do not believe there's any evidence so far that is going up in virulence. And I do not believe there's any reason to believe, to, to expect that we will see more virulent sublineages or lineages. You know, Judy is doing her testing, but... In this evolution of the uh, of the virus, could that have an impact so that the tests you've developed don't work because the virus has evolved too much for your test to pick it up in the way that the tests were designed for? Just briefly, if you would. Yes, very briefly, no. Because at the moment, we still have very little diversity. So essentially, it emerged in late 2019, um, we we're quite confident about that. And so far, it, it's a pretty big genome. And the ones that have the highest number of mutations from the most recent, from the ancestor of all of them, it's about 28 to 29 mutations. So no, I can tell you confidently that there has not been enough evolution for a test like a, a PCR test not to pick up a virus at this stage. You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. Uh, so that's if you like the virus side. Let's now turn to treatments. And R Richard Angel COVID is with us right now. So first of all, have we got anything in the cupboard in terms of drug treatments right now? I guess the, the, the quick answer to that is not good treatments. 
but people are investigating. So um, the first port of call has been to investigate the existing antiviral compounds that are sat on the shelf. Um, and the most advanced compound that many of us have heard about will be uh, remdesivir. But that really is pretty much the only compound at the moment. What about drugs that exist already that might have activity, but we don't yet know about them? In, in other words, I'm, I'm now making this up, I hasten to say, but it, it, you know, a drug for athlete's foot. So uh, we're faced with a a situation where we need to repurpose existing drugs. So we can repurpose existing antivirals and remdesivir is a sort of a poster boy for that approach. Um, Because that was developed for Ebola, wasn't it? So originally it was developed for hepatitis C, but it showed um, activity against Ebola and it also showed activity against other coronaviruses, um, including SARS and MERS. So it's a, an opportunity to develop a compound um, against other another coronavirus family me- member. Um, in terms of repurposing other drugs, um, we could target the host cell processes. So um, in order for the virus to exist, it needs to hijack the cell processes in some way. Um, and there are several um, approaches that are currently being explored with that in mind. Um, I think Probably the biggest caveat is that we, at the moment, we have a limited understanding of how the virus interacts with the cell processes and um, our understanding is developing with time. So it's quite clear that the virus has a unique way of entering the cell um, and there are um, approaches at the moment examining how the virus fuses to the cell surface and see if we can interfere with that process and indeed a... uh, a compound that's approved in Japan for the treatment of acute pancreatitis. So a protease inhibitor is currently being examined in human patients as a way of stopping the virus getting into the cell. So I guess that's a, that's a, an example of how to, how, how you could repurpose a, a drug that was com- developed for a completely different indication uh, for treatment of the virus. But probably not athlete's foot. <laughs> but it's, so it's, it normally takes at least 10 years to develop a, a drug. So how is the drug discovery industry responding to COVID at the moment? Because, it, you know, 10 years is a timeline. Is a, you know, we haven't got 10 years. Yes. Yeah, you're right. It takes a long time to move a potential drug through the necessary human testing and the regulatory hurdles. Um, we're compressing those timelines tremendously. Um, but it will still take time. So I guess the repurposing uh, discussion that we just had speaks to the the most obvious way we're trying to do that. So we can remove the drug discovery phase of the process uh, and we can focus on molecules that we have already discovered to be safe in humans and that either kill the virus or a related virus or they disrupt processes uh, that the virus hijacks. So I think that's probably the the primary way uh, we're looking to accelerate the process. Now, it was inevitable that there would be a pandemic. I mean, we've been preparing it for a very long time, and yet we aren't prepared. And they still come along like Christmas. It, 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 it happens. So how are we going to make sure that we're not taken by surprise? Yeah, it's very hard to um, convince people to spend money 
on something that might never happen. And I guess uh, the lesson um, from the coronavirus outbreak has been that we haven't invested in the what-if scenario. Um, and I think certainly university groups, but also drug discovery, uh, drug, commercial drug discovery groups are now starting to realize that we need to invest some time and effort in preparing for the what-if scenarios. I think that principally means uh, from coronavirus um, specifically, we need to understand how the virus interacts with the biology of the cell more clearly. That will then highlight particular mechanisms that we could target um, in host-based, if you like, broad-spectrum antivirals. But I think also we need to build up a battery of we could call them poised molecules. So molecules that have activity against a broad spectrum of coronaviruses that maybe target specific processes unique to the virus. I mean, the advantage of targeting virus-specific approaches, obviously, is that we avoid potential off-target or host toxicities. So if we can selectively kill the virus um, without touching any of uh, your cell processes, then obviously that's the ideal scenario. So certainly we would be advocates of building up a, a library, if you like, of compound, of poised compounds that have coronavirus provenance. Let me just go back to Judy a second on this, because you know, you're a virologist. What are the viruses on the horizon that we're worried about? I mean, of course, there's flu, there are coronaviruses, but anything else that's on the horizon that we need to be have these poised drugs for? It's very difficult to say. I mean, we know that uh, a lot of the viruses that have spread pandemically have come from bats. And there is work going on to look at, uh, to try and characterise what's present in bats um, all over the world to see whether we can actually pinpoint other viruses. So there are viruses like Nipah hendra, which did cause outbreaks in Malaysia and also in Australia. It, that didn't spread, but again, it, there's possibility that something like that could spread. We know that there are viruses that are present in areas of the world where there are vectors, where there are mosquitoes and ticks, and, and those may become pandemic as climate change occurs because the, uh, the vectors that spread those viruses may be able to survive in different climates. Um, and then we have the, the viruses that um, we've seen, for example, Ebola and other hemorrhagic fevers that occur in, in Africa. Again, it's possible we did have something of a scare with the Ebola virus. Um, it's possible that the conditions may be right uh, for spread of some of those viruses that have not been pandemic. Um, I think what we what we seem to what seems to be the case is that those viruses that really do end up becoming pandemic tend to be respiratory virus spread by the respiratory route because because they're um, spread so easily it's spread so easily and so i think that i would my my bet would be that uh, the next pandemic will be a respiratory virus what it will be I don't know. We still haven't had a, a, a really different flu virus. So that's still a possibility. Um, and yeah, who knows what it could be, but likely to be a respiratory virus, I would think. 
Okay, let me turn now to our uh, last speaker, Susie Farid, because we talk about all the medicines that we might develop. We talk about vaccines. We talk about, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies, all these biological products. And yet that is only the beginning of a process which has to happen at enormous pace and scale. If you're thinking about pandemics where billions of doses are required. So how does what you do contribute to developing uh, the pipeline uh, and the actual sort of product on the shelves? Um, So as you said, developing a new biological treatment or or vaccine is typically uh, a lengthy, costly and and risky uh, journey. Uh, and in biochemical engineering, we're focusing on ways to accelerate the development of the bioprocesses for these new modalities. At, at a national level, UCL Biochemical Engineering is feeding into national manufacturing task forces that have been set up by the Bioindustry Association on things like monoclonal antibodies and vaccines, where we're contributing with innovative tools to enable rapid generation of large numbers of doses against pandemic threats such as COVID-19. At the moment, we have been working uh, and doing uh, the groundwork that has been instrumental uh, in the manufacturing of the Oxford viral vector vaccine to ensure that it can be made in enough quantities uh, and at the right quality for phase one clinical trials. And what are the kind of challenges, sorry to interrupt there, what kind of challenges uh, do you face? Because I suspect a lot of us think of medicines as a bit like widgets in a in in a factory you just feed in the whatever you're making it from and out the other end pops a vaccine or or a medicine but that's not like that at all is it yes so um uh, th- these biological therapies are often they they rely on us culturing cells uh, that act as mini factories to express our target product followed by a series of recovery and purification uh, stages and then fill finish and uh, this is a very highly regulated sector and all aspects of the manufacturing process must you know comply with the highest safety and, and quality standards and all the clinical trials are are underpinned by by having this robust uh, and scalable manufacturing process to hand and and it's not so easy to to change a process for a biological product as when you you change the process there's the risk that you actually change the, the biological product and uh, and the risk that you need to repeat clinical trials so uh, having sophisticated analytics is another key component to help move through the the development pathway uh, smoothly. Obviously, as clinical trial results are are coming through, manufacturers uh, and biochemical engineers are are faced with thinking how to prepare for mass production. But we're trying to do this without knowing which candidate will prove successful in clinical trials or what the dose will be that will show efficacy. And if we're thinking about manufacturing millions, or as you say, perhaps billions of doses, we need to think how to scale up the process to support these very large demands. 
And looking uh, across the globe, uh, you may see that the, the sector may struggle to meet uh, these high demands. And so there may be a, a shortfall in, in capacity. And it's not so easy to build manufacturing capacity as, as that typically uh, takes about three years, requires several tens or hundreds of millions of pounds, which is obviously not a, a route in, in a pandemic uh, situation. So it'd be necessary for the sector to, to come together Think about sharing capacity to supply the large number of doses required. Thinking about how to repurpose existing facilities to ramp up that production. Uh, at UCL, we've been interested in using our uh, decisional tools to help map out the, the costs, benefits and, and risks of alternative capacity sourcing strategies in these pandemic uh, scenarios and uh, help identify uh, the critical challenges in that space. And another key thing when ramping up production is um, that there may be challenges actually sourcing uh, the raw materials at these large scales that, that we're um, envisaging. And we've already seen that. In, in fact, there's been a problem getting the reagents for for, for tests. And one of the things that people have said to me is going to be a problem is that um, ampules I mean, those little glass vials that uh, doses typically come in, manufacturing those by the million is also going to be difficult. Uh, yes, indeed. So so uh, sometimes people sort of forget about the, the fill finish part of this. But, but if you think about uh, sourcing billions of vials, the specialist equipment that are actually needed to, to fill the vials and then even uh, storing all of these vials, uh, you can see that there's a potential for a bottleneck there as well. And are there other industries that are using other processes? Can they be commandeered in the same way that we've seen you know, engineering companies turn their hands to ventilators. Are there processes that are used perhaps in food manufacture or any other process that could be repurposed in order to make vaccines? Perhaps the fit, the fill bit. Potentially, uh, I guess uh, the, the challenge is that uh, some of these require rather uh, specialist pieces of equipment and require GMP or good manufacturing practices uh, and facilities that are, are built to those standards. So uh, the sector may have to be creative in trying to source or, or identify capacity solutions in the space. But I imagine that they will initially be looking at existing biotech facilities and how they can be repurposed before perhaps uh, considering um, uh, other sectors uh, which, which might be able to be uh, adapted to this. Finally, these things take a great deal of time and we're talking about uh, years of development. What are organisations doing at the moment to speed up the normal, very lengthy um, R&D timelines? Uh, yes, so, so on average it can take, uh, you know, say a decade to bring uh, a new therapeutic or vaccine to market. And it's worth uh, also bearing in mind the attrition rate. So, so typically it might be only one in 10 drugs that enter clinical trials that actually make it uh, to the market. So companies typically, you know, have to hedge their bets with multiple candidates, uh, you know, just to ensure a single success. 
In the COVID-19 cases, we're now hearing organizations quote a target of 12 to 18 months to bring uh, these therapies and vaccines to market, which is a very much expedited route. Uh, so how are they doing this? So, so on the manufacturing front, uh, some of these candidates have been able to speed time to clinic by adopting platform manufacturing processes. And uh, so, so this is, uh, uh, it's like a, a templated uh, approach to process development where organizations can leverage experience gathered with an established sequence of bioprocess operations from uh, previous projects that might have been used for different therapies. So for example, the Oxoviral Vector candidate has ben- benefited from a specialist adenovirus manufacturing platform that has been adapted for for COVID-19. And part of this work was actually done in a UCL-Oxford collaboration called the, the Vax Hub. On the clinical front, Typically, clinical trial phases are run in sequence, you know, where you wait for the outcomes of phase one before starting, say, phase two clinical trials. But when we're now moving at pandemic speed through trials, organizations are, are looking at how they can stagger the start of clinical phases and run the activities uh, in parallel. Uh, so essentially, they're operating more at risk. And uh, regulatory authorities such as the MHRA are, are helping to find ways to do this and identify areas of uh, regulatory flexibility to, to support uh, this sort of global healthcare response to pandemic. It's an extraordinarily complex uh, set of things that have to be done to defeat COVID. I mean, you know, you come, all of you come from completely, well, I suppose Judy and, and Francois come from roughly the same uh, area of uh, bioscience, but even so, very different approaches. And you need everybody together to get anywhere at any speed. Uh, I wanted, I mean, this is very naughty of me asking you to speculate because obviously scientists uh, never speculate, but (laughs) it's clear we're going to have to live with COVID. And I wondered what kind of approaches you think we'll see as routine in, say, three years time uh, from your perspective. Uh, Richard, let's start with you on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think One of the things that I've been encouraged to observe over the last few years is the move by pharma companies to open the doors to their compound collections, to their um, internal knowledge base, to both uh, university research groups, but also to small companies. And I would like to see um, an an acceleration of that approach so that we can remove redundancy where we are all researching the same thing, where um, actually our results are open and available to each other and we can come to a solution more quickly. Um, that would be a, a, an ideal scenario, I think, going forward from here. And it's interesting, isn't it? Some of the things that people would have taken three or four years to do have happened in as many weeks. I mean, it's been extraordinary, the pace of change. And some things will go back t- to perhaps a semblance of what they were before, but a lot, I think, will have permanently uh, changed. Francois, what about you? Where do you, what do you think we'll be doing as routine in your particular field? I think it's 
It's been quite remarkable that the pace at which people have produced genomic sequences, it's been quite remarkable at which pace people have been sharing them. And I think it's been useful. I don't think it's been a game changer. It allowed us to understand a few things. Um, but fairly fundamental things, where, when and where did it start? I say clearly China, end of um, 2019, we could confirm it spread very rapidly. Um, we're following obviously very closely the emergence of mutations because that informs drug and, and vaccine design. Um, so it's been in some sense positive. What's been really positive, I'd say, is this, this real move by the community to share data, which is completely unprecedented. I, I was working with similar things during the 2009 influenza, um, H1N1 pandemic. And let's say it's really the change, the field has changed. And I would say for the better. Now, we're still facing the virus, <laughs> but let's say I think at least the field of genomics has made some fundamental uh, contributions so far, and I hope they will be, become more important as we, as we progress. So, Judy, what will we be doing as routine in the testing and tracking area? Well, I think this is... Um... This pandemic has changed our whole approach uh, to how we um, follow and how we manage pandemics. I think that we will do much more testing uh, for pathogens. We won't rely on modelling um, to tell us what to do at the outset. We will be gathering data by doing a lot more testing of people. I think genomics will become, pathogen genomics will become routine. We'll use it to manage outbreaks in the community. We'll use it to manage outbreaks in hospital. I think point of care tests, tests that you and I can do at home, uh, will become much more common. We'll be able to test ourselves to see whether we've got an infection and that will just become routine. And I'm hoping more specifically for the coronavirus that um, we will have a, a, an effective vaccine and effective drugs uh, that will mean that this virus becomes a pathogen that affects children or or doesn't infect anybody you know that either we we rely on it infecting only children the rest of us are immune or in fact we can prevent it infecting anybody at all and please tell us judy that we'll be able to do saliva testing because i don't know whether anybody has tried to uh, sample themselves that uh, that with a swab but it's like trying to poke your eye with a fork it's really <laughs> it's really no. really hard so nasopharyngeal swabs are really a nasty thing to have done um there are now good i mean saliva is a good sample to test for this virus in and increasingly we will be using um samples such as saliva and also perhaps pinprick tests not necessary for covid but for other other pathogens so that it, there'll be much better technology that will allow us to detect pathogens in very small amounts of easily obtainable samples. Final thought from you, Susie, what's going to be the normal modus operandi in three years time in your area? I think that the outbreak, outbreak has focused attention on a rapid development of these biotherapeutics and, and diagnostics. 
um, and so it's paving the way for new benchmarks on on times to get these products to market uh, as the pandemic has given urgency to, to establish these new routes and new regulatory guidelines to move at pandemic speed. I think we'll see more optimised manufacturing processes that are more robust and more easily scalable to better prepare uh, for these outbreaks. And there'll be greater potential, hopefully, to harness the insights from the genomic screening tools that, that Judy's been talking about to develop more personalised therapies, um, you know, which are more tailored to uh, particular individuals or particular strata uh, of the population. Another thing we, we need to do in this time also is um, upskilling people to, to run and operate these uh, facilities and tapping into the UK science and technology sort of uh, capabilities in, in, in universities to, to underpin uh, you know, all the fundamentals related to, uh, for example, the, the bioprocess business and regulatory aspects for these broad ranges of modalities coming through. And on that note, can I thank all of our contributors today? Uh, it's been so interesting. So you've been listening to an episode of Coronavirus, The Whole Story, brought to you by UCL Minds in a special edition for Cheltenham Science Festival's At Home event. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the lovely Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Susie Fareed, Dr Richard Angel, Professor Francois Berlou, and Professor Judy Brewer. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts, or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Bye for now.